Welcome to episode 468 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a very environmentally astute conversation with former director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals and professor at Vermont Law School, our regular contributor, Michael R. Harris. And we talk with Michael about beluga whales in Connecticut, connected justice, animals, people, and places, environmental human rights, animal rights, rights of nature, the commons. We reflect on whether we can trust the government and we talk about various forms of consciousness, among other things. A great conversation with Michael R. Harris this go-round. We have an EWSA titled Bluebells, and we share a short essay from the April 2022 edition of The Sun magazine titled I Pledge Allegiance to the Republic by Yasmin Ameli. And we have a poem called Cool Spring. All of this, of course, will be imbued, infused, with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to be with you. Let's get to it. Episode 468 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours. Open up your mind, baby. Four 
bells. I am such a simple man, trying to figure out where I am, trying to understand. I have nothing. I have everything. I party every night. I drink to my friend, the moon. I start not much past noon. It cannot be too soon. The church bells ring. The firehouse horn blows. Measures of time know not how the wind flows through my pained heart and lost soul. I don't remember if I have lost it, or perhaps it has yet to be found. I think I am searching in all places, spaces, faces, throughout this mixed-up rigmarole. Sunlight and train whistles bounce off the tree-covered mountain range. I think it quite strange that all are not smiling and jumping up high and falling down low. Rejoice, free men and matriarchs. The clouds are as wistful as you and me. And Joanne Montezuma came to this small town from a big city in Ecuador. She is afraid and beautiful and knows more. Help me. I can hear your voice from around the corner. I don't know your words, but they sound like strength and courage. I need them. I saw a rooster and two hens on the road as I was driving my van up the hill to buy beer. All was clear, warm. The early afternoon storm had just passed, and I found a patch of bluebells growing out of the ground in the backyard grass.
I think about pulling that sack Move to the city Country raised Living in the heart of the city, y'all Michael Harris, is that you? Yes, CW, how are you? I'm pretty good. And yourself? Things are doing perfectly fine out here in Denver. Very, very happy and having a good April. 
Oh, nice, nice to hear it. Michael R. Harris, a regular contributor here on Troubadours and Rock On Tours, I'm happy to say. He is the former director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals. And presently, he's a Vermont Law School visiting professor of, I suppose, mainly environmental law courses. Mainly, yes. All right. Well, uh, how how's that going? This is a big change. Friends of Animals, you've done a lot of great work for them over the years, and now you've moved on and uh, are at Vermont Law School, the preeminent environmental law school in the country. Uh, how did all that happen, and how are you feeling about it? You know, I think more than anything, I was just uh, got the taste of teaching again after all these years, as you no, I used to be a full-time law professor at the University of Denver. And, uh, you know, during the pandemic, I was asked to fill in and do some teaching at the, at the University of Denver and started to get the bug again. And, you know, it just came up really quick. They reached out to me from Vermont, and, and um, I had to make a decision. I, I thought about doing a sabbatical for Friends of Animals, but realized, you know, I've got some really good people there that are ready to – to move forward and and um, develop their own personalities and their own roles, so I I left the I left Friends of Animals in very good hands. But things are good here. It's a little odd because I'm not actually living in Vermont yet. I'm still living in Denver, and I'm flying out there once a month. <laughs> oh, so, wow. yeah, it makes it a little hard to uh, you know to really just jump right in. And it's going well though, and I'll be out there in a couple weeks. And then the summer is the big quandary of whether or not my family and I make a big move to Vermont for uh, for permanent life out there. Yeah, that's a big decision, and uh, I wish you the best. It's a good predicament, so to speak, to be in. And I should mention for the listeners, you know, that's where you and I met at Vermont Law School as students, and also another one of our regular contributors, Almighty Todd, who's still in Vermont. So you'll get to hang out with him at least if you decide to... Uh, move to Vermont. Yeah. Do you think your um, listeners will, um, will I be breaking uh, your confidence by telling them that our 30 year anniversary is coming up here in, in July and I'm supposed to be asking you to, to come up and, and, and be part of that? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm glad you're bringing it up on air. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to try to do that for sure. Uh, 30 years, man. Wow. I'll tell you. goes by yeah. quick. And by your voice, they probably figured you were, you know, in your 30s or something like that. They're probably just all shocked right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I sound like, I sound like uh, I'm in my 30s. I'll go with that. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about some of the things you you shared with me uh, previous to our conversation. Um, we we talked in the past about some of the beluga whales in uh, Connecticut at at the Mystic. Aquarium, I think it's called. And um, there's been a problem up there since last spring uh, and into the summer with with five whales that were sent from Canada to to uh, Mystic. And you're concerned about it, too. You want to get into that a bit? Yeah, of course. And as your listeners know, I mean, Friends of Animals was all about wildlife protection and preventing animals from being mistreated both in the wild and then being subjected to uh, exploitation by humans, whether in, in on exhibits like these whales are at the Mystic Aquarium or by 
trophy hunters or by entertainment industries. And so it, it's super important to me. And, and one thing that I have to say, I mean, Vermont Law School has a new program in, in animal law as well. So I will con- get to continue to express myself in that way as well. And the Mystic Whale case was one of the biggest cases we had in the last couple of years at Friends of Animals. And as you precisely stated, um, Canada outlawed the um, the uh, use of whales, dolphins, and uh, other marine animals in public exhibits at places like aquariums and at places like marine land or SeaWorld. And so the hope had been that the whales that had been in captive uh, up in Canada would then find a way to some of these new emerging sanctuaries, the first of which just opened uh, uh, in Europe and another which is might might be located um, up in up off the coast of New England, uh, but instead, uh, true to their form, uh, some of these Canadian operations continued to exploit the animals by trying to sell them off to other countries where they could continue to be exploited for show. And Mystic Aquarium purchased five of, of these beluga whales. Now we objected to it on the grounds that it was not only contrary to the whole purpose of the Canadian law. Uh, but also it was just inhumane and quite frankly immoral to continue to exploit these type of amazing animals with such high intelligence, high sense of awareness. Um, We lost that case uh, in the district court in Connecticut two years ago and the transfer occurred and it has been a disaster ever since. The animals have been sick, they've injured themselves, now, two have died. The most recent death was just this past um, uh, February, I believe, or maybe in March. They're not quite clear mm-hmm. on when, when it happened. The news came out in March. Uh, there have been inspections by the federal government of this facility, citing all kinds of just terrible uh, wrongs there. Uh, the aquarium sizes are too small. The animals aren't being handled well. Uh, and they're all very stressed. So just a complete disappointment. But what do we expect with our continued mindset that these animals somehow are goldfish or something? Right. You know, right. They're not. And it's a commercial enterprise, too, isn't it? The Mystic Aquarium. So they're about the bottom line more than anything else, I'd imagine. Absolutely. I mean, they pay their chief executive officer, you know, more than a million dollars. And that money isn't being paid to him to somehow um, take care of whales, whales and other animals. It's to make a profit off of these these lives, these souls that are, are there and, and trapped forever uh, in their facility. And so what's next? What do you, I mean, what, what can you do now? Two have died. Two out of the five have died, right? Two out of the five have died. And... I think right now all eyes are on the U.S. Department of Agriculture that oversees and regulates these facilities and a big push, not just by Friends of Animals, but by a number of groups now that have become aware of the situation, including PETA and the Animal Welfare Institute and others, to try to get the USDA to revoke their license. Um, again, the hope would be that, you know, you know, we, we, you prevented their, their – um, exhibiting these species in Canada, if we can get them to revoke the license here, um, maybe maybe there's a possibility that these remaining three could end up in a sanctuary instead of um, in confinement. 
whether the USDA would do that, I mean, the reality is, is they don't have a very good track record of responding very positive, right? They, they, they issue citations and then sort of fade away and take the word of the facility that the, the problems have been corrected. But this has garnered a lot of attention and two deaths in two years is, is, is a pretty significant violation and problem. I mean, we, don't, we usually don't see this. I mean, your, your listeners may have followed, for instance, some of the plight of the, of the different whales at SeaWorld. Um, Blackfish, of course, being the documentary that garnered so much attention to this problem. Um, mm -hmm. But in all those years, actual deaths of the animals was rare. What usually was being documented was their extreme stress, their health conditions, their lack of um, being able to exhibit their natural behaviors. Deaths are rare. So to have two at one facility inside a short amount of time, I think raises the possibility that you might have actual action by the government to say, you know, you're going to take these away from you. Take, the, take the, their care and put them elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, that would be reasonable. And, and the beluga whales, are they uh, a species that we, we should worry about in terms of numbers? Yes and no. Um, th some of their populations, uh, like those that are um, in, off the coast of Alaska, are considered to be threatened or endangered. So there's definitely some concern about populations of them around the world. A lot of these belugas that are in captivity, though, have come off the coasts of, of Russia, where not a lot is really known about the populations in the wild. So, you know, the reality is it's hard not to say we shouldn't be worried about any species today. I mean, um, the entire ecosystem is highly threatened and overexploited. Um, but to say that there are, you know, legal concerns right now about beluga populations in places like Russia or Finland, I don't think we know that. Uh, but we definitely have protections for them in the United States and, like I said, off the coast of Alaska. And, and for you, Michael, it's not just about numbers and population. I mean, when you talk about other animals... Uh, I say other, you know, in comparison to human animals, you, you're concerned about their well-being. Yeah, I think more than anything, it doesn't matter if there are, you know, um, a, 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 an overpopulation of them in the wild. The point is, is are they happy in captivity? Are they living meaningful lives? I've used that term on your show so many times. And what, what that means is, to a beluga, what is a good life? What does it mean um, to, for instance, be able to have social companionships, play, um, to be able to explore, uh, to not have your bodily integrity um, sort of controlled for you by walls in a, in a tank? These things are important to all animals, just at, just at different levels. What, what is a good life for a beluga may not be the same conditions for, you know, um, a sea bass. I mean, every animal needs to sort of be given an opportunity to live its best life. And we know for sure that belugas and killer whales and dolphins and, for that matter, elephants and chimpanzees um, in particular have pretty high-order needs um, of autonomy and freedom and playfulness 
that just aren't met. And so it doesn't have anything to do with how many are in the wild, like you said. It has to do with these individuals having all that taken away from them. And do you think, you know, it's mutually exclusive to, for human homo sapiens to to live well and uh, other animals to live well? Well, I, I know in this case it is. I, I don't think our lives will be any less meaningful if we can't go to the mystic aquarium. Um, but that's a that's a very difficult question to answer generally. I mean, there are there are a lot of species that we're exploiting that one may say is for the embetterment of humans. One example might be someone who feels that we need to do medical research on an animal. I personally don't believe that. I personally think that science has shown us that advanced computer technologies and AI take the role of, of animal you know, experimentation. But it's certainly more... It would make more sense, I think, to many people that 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 the, those kinds of needs served a purpose, even at the animal's expense, than certainly paying a ticket to go see an animal swim around a tank on a you know for an hour and a half. I see what you're you're tearing it in a way, like you know, it's it's really somewhat. I don't know if the word ridiculous is the right word. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's ridiculous. I'll say for us to go and and uh, you know keep our animals unhappy in captivity just so we could spend an afternoon watching them. You know, uh, that's something we should not accept. Whereas it's a little bit more of a gray area, a little bit more of a challenging situation to figure uh, if it's if we should stop using animals um, to to advance science and technology for the betterment of sap- hum- Homo sapiens or humans. That's a little more of a challenging scenario to to navigate. Yeah, I think that human feelings can can definitely be tiered along that range. I I, I think it's easier for more people to accept the beluga situation being unkind and unnecessary than maybe other situations. But then I really think what we have to ask ourselves is, you know, can we find a way to replace our needs, for instance, for human, for medical research that may affect the lives of chimpanzees or mice can we replace those needs and get what we need to be human without having to exploit them? I think we should continuously be asking ourselves that. We shouldn't accept any of this. Um, We should be working towards making our lives completely undependent on the lives of other animals. I like it. We're talking with regular contributor Michael R. Harris on the program. He is an environmental law attorney, a professor, and uh, a good guy, in my estimation. Uh, Known him for years, at least 30. So, uh, you know, I I, I had a a nice discussion with one of my classes today, earlier on. I, I told them, I talk about you a lot in class. Uh, when we're we're getting into areas of your expertise, and I said, you know, I'm talking to uh, Michael uh, today for the radio program. Do you have any questions you want me to ask him? And they gave me two questions. They like didn't even pause, um, and I share them with you in advance. So I don't want you to think I'm I'm like blindsiding him with these questions, though he'd be good on his feet anyway. I'm sure. 
the first the first one is do you believe the uh better approach to take care of the quote commons would come from a government-driven effort or from privatization. Now, the commons, I guess we should give a little background information. It's basically what we all sort of have a right to, but none of us own, right? Would that be a good way to sure. defining the commons? Yeah, the air, the seas, the lakes, the, the forests that, that we use for resources. Right, and we're having, thank you, and we're having a discussion in class about what's the best way to make sure we, we take care of the commons. And of course, Hardin comes up, right? Garrett Hardin, and he gives you some of his ideas, uh, the tragedy of the commons. And, and it's, he, he, I think, believed that privatization was the best mode, because I don't think he believes government, believes in government, uh, or their ability, or humans just to be able to do it on their, on their own, you know, with the community, is my understanding. So he says privatization. Uh, would be the best way. So you just sell off some of these things to a private entity, and then those folks have a vested interest because they own it, and they're going to take better care of it. Then it won't be, you know, destroyed. Uh, what, where, what do you think of that for our students, for my students, so they can get uh, another opinion? Yeah. Well, you know, intellectually, I have to say I, I feel the government. And part of it is just simply because we don't have to we don't have to debate the role of privatization because we can see what has happened in history. So let's just take more modern air history. And we won't even talk about the fact that uh, left to the private market um, or to individual decision makings. And then I'll even call it, you know, in some ways Kings at the time, sort of private enterprises, you know, that's just utter destruction of all the forests of Europe and the Middle East. <laughs> um, you know, it was it was the problem, of course, is, is that without anybody there to tell you no, there's no reason not to grab it before another private party does. But just modern times, just let, let's say from the middle of the 19th century forward, so the industrial era, the industrial, you know, 1730, see, 18th century forward, uh, you know, from 1730-ish until, you know, the end of the 20th century, look at what the private markets did in an industrialized civil situation, right? Mm -hmm. We raised the standard of living quite dramatically and to the benefit of all humans, really, life expectancy, health, the way we live, the goods we have. But by the by 19, but, you know, by 1980, look at look at our water, look at our air, look at the forest and our resources. It was decimated by that and, and leading towards, you know, a, a real a real destructive end and government regulation beginning around 1970, 1980 has really stabilized all of that. And, you know, our air is cleaner than it's ever been, not just in the United States, but in Europe as well. Now they're having problems in more developing countries and, and throughout Asia and elsewhere because they haven't started to regulate that yet. Our water isn't on fire in this country anymore. We could drink most of it. We have problems with aging infrastructure like we saw in Flint, Michigan, but that's not a water quality problem. That's a water delivery problem. So we have dramatically improved the commons through government regulation and privatization destroyed it for the 150 years prior. Now the problem is, is the government seems to be 
being taken by the private tiers. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you can trust the government. I don't think there's I don't know if we can distinguish between the two anymore. Government actions all tend to be aimed at just assisting the private market. At the at the state and the federal, more so one or the other. What do you think? Maybe more so at the federal level, but I guess I haven't really surveyed all of that to to give a an accurate answer. But I think we're seeing it across the board. Um, certainly, rolling back environmental regulations at the federal level in the last fifteen to twenty years is the norm. And so I'm just afraid that the government is no longer any more trustworthy than the private market. So. Because they're one and the same, perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> yeah. And, well, that's a great answer, Professor Harris. Uh, students, I, ho- I hope that helped you out a bit more, because uh, I'm going to put that on your final, so, you know. <laughs> um, now, let's, I want to give you a, an opportunity to touch on something that you really have been thinking about a lot, and you're working uh, on in, in the context of curriculum. Um to make a, a, a reality, and it's it's you know in terms of something that people could study uh, and learn, and, and you know maybe even propagate as a, as a mindset, and and it's connected justice is the way you've described it to me. Animals, people, and places. What do you what do you mean by that, and why is it important? Well, you know, one thing I've learned over my thirty years <laughs> is. Um, there are a lot of really good people working to protect the environment. And I talk and I say that like natural resources, our seas, the animals that live out there in the forest. Um, and there are some really, really good people working to advance the lives of animals, um, whether they're animals on farms or whether they're at, you know, like we're talking about like at SeaWorld or Marineland or not having to be subjected to testing for cosmetic industries or or medical industries. And then there's a really, really good group of people out there that are working on what might be concerned more like environmental justice issues, like the fact that um, lower income communities or minority communities in this country suffer disproportionately from where we put polluting factories and um, even polluting farms and, and all of those types of things that create real health impacts on those communities. But for the most part, there's not a whole lot of dialogue between those groups. And sometimes it's even a little competitive. Mm-hmm. And some of it is just an idea of the people who are doing it. It's personal to them, right? For, for whatever reason, even they live in an environmental justice community that's being disproportionately impacted by industry or or you know or they grew up um wandering around the forest and personally want to see it protected or or the oceans or or they have developed some type of a connection with animals um you know they become vegetarians and vegans and don't think we should be exploiting them but there has traditionally been somewhat of a separation between those three ways of thoughts and and i question why if that's a good thing And aren't we really talking about rights in a context that is, you know, all of those things, animals, people, places versus the harms that are bestowed upon them by industry and decision makers? And wouldn't we 
it, could there be a world in which we're all three are better off connected and joined in trying to fight what what can be seen as some similarities with respect to those that are harming them um you know i also more on a philosophical side sort of think about like all three of them are a form of consciousness and i don't know if we should be dividing consciousness up like that right i think it's Hmm, no I, i think we should all want to advance the consciousness and that includes protecting people places and animals that makes us better as humans as well and there are a lot of as as you know as you saw what i wrote up there's a lot of controversy over that and there's a lot of of arguments to keep them separate one big argument of course is how can we compare the lives of humans to animals for instance or even comparing the potential loss of human lives to protecting a forest and I'm not discounting that at all. I'm not at this point trying to say they're all the same. I'm just wondering if they can be connected. Yeah. I I think that is generally the best approach for any uh, set of groups that have, a, have common, um, I guess, needs and goals uh, to be satisfied and addressed. You know, you pool your resources and... And uh, you grow your numbers and your efforts to to make those those things uh, you know occur that you need to see in your mind occur. Yeah, I, it's it's hard though I, because of some of the things you mentioned, and of course territory. You know, territorialism. I'm sure you you in the last thirty years you've got a, a whiff of that. Um, yeah, yeah. That's human. That's a human uh, trait that. Uh, has always been with us. Um, so, nonetheless, though it's a it's a fascinating approach, and I look forward to, to seeing and hearing how it develops. This is something you're working on uh, for for curriculum to to offer at some institution, is my understanding. Yeah, the hope is to teach a class on this in the spring of next year at Vermont Law School. Um, I know that there's some folks there that think it's a great idea. My understanding, it's more of just a scheduling issue now that there's good buy-in on it. So I think it would be a fascinating course that there are some works out there, some books. There's a great book called The Lives of Animals by this guy named Kansi. Um There's some works um, written about prairie dogs and genocide. There, there are folks who have touched upon this. But I think that the whole purpose of those works is to be controversial. And what I would like to do is to say, can we get past the controversy? Is there any reality to to these becoming a a singular field of legal thought related to some might say the rights of nature and humans are part of that right yeah right yeah again we got to get our egos in check if we're going to accept that but i i'm with you i think that's wonderful um michael harris michael r harris our resident environmental law scholar and uh, he is uh, an attorney, generally speaking, but his focus is environmental law, and he's also a professor. And uh, it's it's wonderful talking with you always. And I look forward to seeing you this summer, hopefully, uh, up in uh, our old stomping grounds for our 30th anniversary at, as graduates of Vermont Law School, the Fighting Swans. Yes, the Fighting Swans. Well, I hope you make it. 
I will definitely be up there. I, I'm sort of on the hook now for that. So I, I need some some MSL colleagues up there so I don't get overwhelmed by the by all those JD colleagues of ours. So. <laughs> I hear you. I'll do my best to be there with you, brother. All right. Well, thanks, CW. I really enjoy talking to you, and this is always a good conversation. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. Talk to you again soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. April 2022 edition of The Sun Magazine. This is called I Pledge Allegiance to the Republic by Yasmin Ameli. Every morning, the public school chooses a student to lead us in patriotic worship over the intercom. I stand before my classroom flag and count my heartbeats. At recess, I draw stars and stars. We are one nation under God. 
I crayon within the lines. When the school announces the annual poetry contest, I write a poem for the republic for which the flag stands. Last year, I wrote a poem about the country that my mama calls back home. I did not win. This year, I know better. My poem is chosen. The local paper prints my name on the front page. The teacher makes me line leader. In the gymnasium, the entire school sits and sweats in neat rows. The assembly is televised on the local channel, and we wave to the camera. We sing the Star-Spangled Banner. We sing, You're a Grand Old Flag. When it is my turn to stand, I smooth my red dress. The title of my poem is, We Are As Free As The Wind. I am ten. I recite my lines. I believe them.
cool spring. Beluga whales in Connecticut. That doesn't sound right. American Indians in Mexico. Monikers of the conquistador. Sweet, cool spring rain. Blossom yellow, white, and pink flowers just outside my door. Though I'm taught that I need more. Stipulations, consequences, and living as a chore. As a docile response, I rebel, laying naked on the floor. And there you have it. 
Night, episode 468 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our good friend Michael R. Harris. Also, I'd like to thank The Sun Magazine and writer Yasmin Ameli. And these musical artists, Thelonious Monk, Astra Black, Robert Finley, Devin Gilfillian, Parquet Quartz, Quadrin, and of course, Brentford Marsalis and Terence Blanchard too. And I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care of yourself and others too. Nature.